Hey, it's Kristen Donnelly, co-host of Everything Cookbooks. If write a cookbook tops your list of goals for 2023, I want to help you tackle it. On January 9th, I'm starting a new course called The Cookbook Proposal Bootcamp. Over eight weeks, we'll take your cookbook proposal from draft to done. You can learn more about the course and see if it's right for you at proposal.kristendonnelly.com. Use the code EverythingCookbooks, all one word, at checkout to receive $50 off the course. Back in the day when you picked up a cookbook, you didn't really expect personality. You just wanted recipes. But nowadays, you want to know more about the person who wrote it. You want their story, palette, and techniques. For authors, that's a lot of pressure to deliver. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for writers, readers, and cooks. This is Andrea Nguyen, and I'm here today with co-host Kate Leahy. Hey, Kate, what have you been reading and cooking from lately? Hey, Andrea. Well, it's really funny. I actually picked up The Joy of Cooking. Um, It was a recent edition, and I was looking up just a classic baked bean recipe for a project I was working on. And in the index, when I was looking for baked beans, I saw a list of recipes from the Becker family. I had to take a second glance because it just seemed out of place. I mean, you don't think of Joy of Cooking and personal family recipes, even if that's the family behind Joy of Cooking. But nowadays, of course, you're going to expect those personal recipes. I know exactly what you mean. There's like this pivot in the modern cookbooks. And one of the cookbooks that I'm totally smitten by is Andy Baragani's debut bestseller, The Cook You Want to Be. Oh, yeah. I mean, Andy's been the editor at Bon Appetit. He's cooked at Chez Panisse. He's worked at Estella. And his recipes are really loaded with flavor in the way that a smart recipe developer can take restaurant technique and make it doable for kitchens at home. And he's also got a lot of opinions, which I appreciate. You know, he's going to tell you that the ocean is probably too salty for your pasta water, but it should be really salty when you make your pickles. So salty, I think it's something like two tablespoons of salt to your pickling brine. And if you do it any less, it's not enough. Oh, God. Well, we're going to talk to Andy Vergani today about his book and his provocative point of view. Hello, Andy Vergani. Hi. Hi, Andrea. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. We are so damn excited to finally get to talk to you because your book has personally made me so excited about cooking and seeing things in different ways. And I felt like I have gotten to know you through this book so much more than any of your other work. Thank you. That really, that means the world coming from you. And I know I reached out and I was like, you know, I love what you and the team are doing, you and Kate, for Everything Cookbooks. I love the podcast. It's so informative. It's so thoughtful. And so I feel very honored to to be here today. Well, let's get right into your beautiful debut (laughs) baby, the cook you want to be. You write with a really straightforward economy. There's a lot of white space in the book. Yes, there is. There's a lot. I wanted to, well, for many reasons, but I I really wanted it to feel obviously easily legible, but I wanted to feel like I'm I'm speaking to the reader, you know, it should feel personal. And this is, uh, I think all cookbooks are personal, but I think uh, I really wanted this one to feel like uh, I'm right there with you in the kitchen. Well, up front, right off the bat, you state that you tried not to be a cook. 
You wanted to be Al Pacino. You wanted to be an anthropology professor, a star in the fashion world. How'd you end up with a 16-year plus career in food? And what sharpened your focus on the culinary and gotcha writing? Well, I think, you know, the, the, my innate love for food, it, it, it existed my whole life. So this is something that it didn't happen in, uh, as an adult. It was very much part of me at a very young age. You know, looking back, I'm not sure why I wanted to maybe kind of challenge myself to try different, uh, go to different spaces, different careers. Maybe if I'm being honest with myself, I I didn't want to be confined. And I feel like I still have this this kind of mentality where if anybody or any place has, tries to kind of categorize me, I kind of want to break that mold. Even when I was young, people were like, Oh, he, they would, my family or friends was like, oh, he's going to be a chef. He's going to be a chef. I was like, no, I'm not going to be a chef. But it's the same way I feel like that has happened where it's like, oh, he wants to work in fashion. He's going to be a designer. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be a designer. So part of it is probably like a level of indecisiveness. But I also like to think that it was also extreme curiosity and wanting to do a lot of different things. But I will say that there has been, it's been very satisfying and enlightening in many, many different uh, ways, not just um beyond the kitchen uh, that I've chosen the path of food and cooking and writing. (laughs) And writing, right. Where did the title come from? I'll never forget. I was was in actually Taiwan. Uh, I was in Taiwan for uh, a story and I was on my own. I really had to kind of, I was working on the proposal for the book and I couldn't think of a title. And I just kept on writing many, many, many different ideas I circled this one title, which was isn't this current title. You have to tell us what you it was. You have to tell us. It was just one little switch, and that was called The Cook I Want to Be. And I thought, ah. you know, I wanted this the book to feel very personal, and I wanted it to have essays. I wanted it to really teach people not just about cooking, but specifically about certain ingredients, techniques, the cultural context of certain dishes, and the lessons I've learned throughout my life as a cook thus far. But halfway through writing this book, I realized as personal as this book is, and it's coming from obviously me, it's also very much about the reader. And so I switched the I to a you to kind of extend a hand to the reader and really bring them in because I feel like you could develop the best recipe for whatever dish, but you obviously want the reader, the home cook to actually make it and fall in love with it and have it be a part of their repertoire, hopefully. That's the, the little switch <laughs> that happened. And it made the, all the difference, I think, in many ways. So you were working on it with this, with the eye in mind, and then halfway through the book, when you were already well into the recipe development process, a little light bulb went on and you switched it to the you. Was that a conversation with your editor? How did that happen? Very much so. Lorena was a huge, my editor, Lorena Jones, she was very much, you know, a part of that conversation. And, and she also was like, uh, totally understood and thought it was a great idea. And uh, we went back and forth from the very beginning about it, also looking at the essays that I wrote, uh, it was, some of them are very much about me, but they were also kind of general lessons, I think, that we try to learn throughout life. Uh, So I'm happy that I I made the switch. So when you were writing, Andy, you know, first it's like the cook I want to be, but then you still, you know, when you're writing a recipe in your essays, there's an audience, there's a muse, or maybe many muses 
And who comprises, you know, when you're thinking about who you're writing for, who you're writing to, who comprises that? So this this book, I should say, taking a step back, it's not, I, I remember before I, um, before the book came out, people were like, oh, is it a, is it a Persian cookbook? Is it a vegetable cookbook? And really trying to get a sense. I'm like, and the truth is this book touches on a lot of different flavors and cuisines and a lot of lessons that I've learned throughout my life. And I think what I really wanted was to write a book where there's, we really, I have to say, we're in a renaissance of cookbooks. There's so many incredible cookbooks that have been coming out. I think one thing that I have seen while I was an editor for many years uh, in food media was that a lot of cookbooks take this kind of authoritative approach to, to writing recipes and writing cookbooks, kind of uh, more like, I'm the expert, this is what you're doing, and follow these directions. While I have developed probably 400 plus recipes for many different publications over the years, it's always been under that specific style guide, whether it's for Bon Appetit or a Sever or a Wall Street Journal. And so for this book, I really wanted to kind of write thinking about the curious cook, one who is maybe willing to try a new ingredient for the first time or try a new technique really give them the um, the openness, the space to cook it, love it, and hold on to it, but also explore. And I say that very quickly, especially in the um, condiments chapter, uh, the Mighty Little Sauces. If to obviously use these, love them. They are integrated throughout the book, but also apply them here, there, there, on all the different ways. I think it's very important to not stay stagnant in any kind of um, creative field. Yeah, so like you're you're the the teacher, the gentle coach, the buddy <laughs> in the kitchen, but also there's this voice of authority because you know most cookbook writing is soft and gentle. It's very aspirational. You can do this, but you could also do this or do this, and it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, right. But you're like you're damn opinionated. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm not gonna lie. And from one opinionated person to another, I think people who've read my writing or have watched my videos in the past. I am very opinionated and there's certain things that I am a stickler about. I wanted to make it very clear, like, well, you're, you have this movement in this space, but this is very much the way I do it. And also the reasoning why I do it this way and the joy that I get from it. Uh, so uh, no. And also I think uh, I have strong opinions about food and many, many other things. And it should, uh, I think a, the book was kind of the best way to kind of showcase that. I do have a, a note that I'm going to get the the coon spoon because I've been using the spoon and it's totally inferior. And so I have already ordered one, thanks to your opinion that this is the spoon that you, we should have in your kitchen. Yes. So I'll report back. You mentioned you've been at Sever and Bon Appetit, and I think you were at Tasting Table too, yes. right? I sense like you've been in food media forever because I have seen your name in so many places, <laughs> but but... But with Bon Appetit, you know, because that was like the last place where you were, you were at. How do these, those being in those particular outlets influence your voice and your recipe writing? You know, I will say that I think prior to working in food media, I spent a lot of time working in, in restaurant kitchens. And I think restaurant kitchens allowed me to explore a lot of different techniques flavor combinations, cleanliness, work ethic. There was a lot of order. And I think working in food media, it really gave me, which e each place, Sever, Tasting Table, and especially at Bon Appetit, where I spend the most time, really allowed me to distill the lessons that I've learned, my techniques, 
the way I cook into actually the written form into a recipe. So I think like if I didn't have those experiences, I don't think I would have been able to. It wouldn't have been um, as clear. I think with each year, each new place that I've worked at, it made me a better recipe developer and a better writer. So it was essential, I think, to the end goal of being a, a cookbook author. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, like when I've been asked to write for Food 52, for example, there's like this little Food 52 voice that comes into my brain, right? Yes. Yeah, you're like, oh yeah, I know what to do. And there's a particular Bon Appetit voice too. And then at Sever, as you know, there was always this editing method where everything just kind of got drained out. <laughs> we can talk about that in another conversation. But but each outlet, as you say, has a style sheet. So how do you, having written for so many different outlets, switch? I think BA was definitely uh, probably the voiciest outlet in their writing and especially in their in the recipe writing. I think where uh, what I wanted to do with this book was to really make sure that there is some kind of lesson learned throughout each recipe, which isn't necessarily always the case with recipes. Sometimes recipes are put out just because it works, or sometimes it actually doesn't work and it's still put out, or it just looks good or tastes good. But I really wanted people to kind of learn about something with each recipe, whether that is learning to not just present a burrata on its own, but tear it up so that kind of creaminess can mingle with the other ingredients, or to use actually chopped uh, fresh lemon into a dressing and not just the zest or the juice, but the wonderful pith can get inside. So each recipe does have something and it's sometimes overt, sometimes it's subtle, but there should be a lesson that you're absorbing and a, an understanding to make you uh, a better cook. Now that you brought it burrata, I was just thinking that. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. We're putting you on the hot seat. We are because I want to talk about sex. <laughs> Another favorite subject. <laughs> you know, I gotta say, like people throw around this notion of like food porn and stuff only in photos. Yes. But I feel like you bring this sensuality out in your writing that is so provocative and beautiful. And the other thing too is like, you know, second sentence in your intro, you claim your identity, describe yourself as this little gay Persian boy. And I was just like, all right, you know, that's done. Yes. And we're talking decades after James Beard, Craig Claiborne, Richard Olney. You know, we're now talking about how gay men have influenced cooking in America and food writing. This is a, you know, this is like a big question. How do you and your work fit into that story in today's food media? And what's different for you and your generation? And does that even matter? Oof. Okay. I know the loaded question. question. Well, first I should, uh, and, and I, I am thankful to so many of the kind of queer community that has come before me, but also the queer community that is with us and putting out beautiful work to this day who are uh, older than me, who are in my generation, the younger generation. I am inspired and moved in many different ways by the entire queer community. I think while I'm certainly not the first gay man to write a cookbook, I wanted to make sure that I did state that pretty quickly, uh, both my ethnicity and my sexuality, things that are sometimes are not necessarily stated in a cookbook or concealed in certain ways. I thought, well, both of these things, whether I like it or not, whether I'm fully even 
aware of it or have have a deep uh, understanding of it have influenced the way I live my life, both in and out of the kitchen. And I want to state that. And I also think that hopefully it will make someone who is a queer or Iranian or of Middle Eastern descent or a different descent makes them more comfortable and be able to kind of do good work, whether that's in food or in their own kind of respective creative field. I think it was it's something it was very important for me to do. I feel like there's another part of your question. There, I have there is. And we're getting back to the burrata. And, you know, it's <laughs> um, I live in Northern California. You're from Berkeley. Yes. You know, the Northern California, we have a lot of persimmon trees. We do. That would steal everybody's persimmons. Oh, totally. You have to steal neighbors, any neighbor's fruit tree. Yes. If it's citrus, persimmon, that's the beauty of Northern California. Exactly. It's, I call that foraging. So <laughs> the persimmons with torn burrata and fresh lemon recipe on page 132 has this head note that is so beautifully written. And typically, you know, I read things from a author's cookbook online. And I tried out first on my husband. Okay. So I like read your head note out to my husband. He said, Oh, well, that's really beautiful. But I felt like it really didn't do it justice the way that you wrote it. So I would love for you to read that head note for us in your voice, please. I'm happy to. I have my book right here. So the recipe is persimmons with torn burrata and fresh lemon. This is a savory fruit salad that stimulates and intrigues in all the ways. I'll refrain from veering into the sensual with my description here, as this is a cookbook and my sex book has yet to be written. All I'll say is the aroma of the inner flesh of a persimmon reminds me of something very distinct. Slice one open and you be the judge. Fuyu persimmons have a mild honey sweetness and the milkiness of burrata takes it to a special place. It's sexy, fleshy, juicy, and a little messy. You'll need a napkin. <laughs> so tell us. I've got little tingles all over my body now. Um, <laughs> how'd that come together? There is something where, well, one, I'm a very sexual person. I spoke about my sexuality. I also, when we launched, um, when I was at One Up Two, we launched a vertical, a digital vertical called Healthyish, uh, which touched on a lot of different things in the wellness space. And I definitely spoke about uh, uh, sex and, and identity. And I thought, well, you know, certain head notes are sometimes just giving more context to an ingredient or a dish. And I thought, well, there should be also a kind of reason why I do this and how it is and some of the inspiration. And sometimes a head note that tells you how the writer was inspired to making this dish is usually doesn't always read too well. And so I wanted to entice people and excite them. And I thought, well, make them hungry and also aroused at the same time. <laughs> Yeah. That brings a question that I have just about your writing and your writing style. I mean, do you like writing or do you like the recipe development process more? When you get to write a head note like this, does it make you kind of excited? Or is it one of those things where you'd rather be in the kitchen creating new recipes? Because I feel like sometimes people fall on one side or the other. They prefer the recipes to the writing and vice versa. I mean, I, I very much obviously I, I started out as a cook and I still very much obviously identify as, as a cook. But I, I do enjoy the writing. I think it, it's a challenge for me. Like I will, I have to go to a place. And I, and I wrote this book, really peak pandemic. I had started it before the pandemic, but I wrote it uh, the majority during the pandemic. 
as you both know, like writing a book is hard. Writing your first book is that much harder. Doing anything during the pandemic was just it's really hard. hard. What makes me happy is that this book ended up being a lot more vulnerable in all the ways and which I'm very happy with. And I think it I think I can say that it probably made it feel a little bit more distinct than some some other cookbooks. I think I definitely feel more comfortable as an editor, sometimes as a writer, though. I'll say that. I think it's natural for me to be an editor, um, not just with words, but in, in many aspects, whether it has to do with design or editing a, uh, a recipe, editing my cooking, photography. It's It's much more natural to me to kind of get in there in that sense. How do you turn your editor brain off so you can be your writing brain, so you can be your creative brain and not have that judging editor on your shoulder saying, don't do that. That's not going to work. Don't even bother trying that. That's, you know, like move on to the next thing. It's very difficult for me. I, do, I wouldn't even say that I'm, I'm at a place that ha- I've perfected it, especially when it comes to the writing, because and Lorena would tell me over and over, she's like, just get it on paper and let, I'll, I'll take care of it. But I think uh, for me, really a, a lot of it where what happens, I, I'd obviously look at the words, think about the words, but then I would also think about how would they would look on the page. Oh, That is something where if, if you have my book, I mean, I know the two of you do, but you'll see that I really wanted to be conscious of where there's breathing room. I think um, there's, I wanted to make sure in some ways, this book, the design of this book, I wanted to kind of pare it back a little bit. I saw so many cookbooks that are really well designed and there's a lot of heavy design and the, there's so many props. And, and I think, obviously, it, this is very much my aesthetic to kind of, you, the, the listeners can't see this, but you'll you see. The, I see uh, behind you. <laughs> very much, you'll see the, <laughs> my aesthetic and it, it fits with my book. So I wanted to have that space for people to the words kind of stand on their own. So that is something I was very conscious of. I definitely wrote a good amount in this book, but I I sometimes would think like, am I writing too much? Am I writing too much? So I'd edit myself. (laughs) Well, I think self-editing is like one of the things that you learn to do as a writer. And sometimes I've been told years ago when I was working for a server, Todd Coleman, whom you worked with, he, he wrote me and he said, you really like held back, didn't you? Mm. And he said, I want you to like, go back and expand more because you're, you know, there was always that time when you're starting out, you're like, I'm just going to write to word count. And then you do. And then you're like, you've edited yourself down so much that so much is lost. So nowadays, I just always overwrite. But then I always sort of like try to pare it down. And that being the editor, your own editor is sometimes like this self flagellation that happens. I I do agree that I feel like I'm I'm an overwriter, which I think is actually like it's it's a good thing. Like I'm happy to to, to that I'm I feel like I'm bad rather than underwriting. <laughs> but um, I, while I do self edit, and I don't know if it will ever go away. I want to make sure that it's just enough and never too much. Right. I think we're all, um, so this is a club of overwriters because I definitely am raising my hand as the overwriter club. I once turned in a manuscript that was 20,000 words over. (laughs) So don't do what I did. (laughs) Yeah, that's hard. But uh, that I think, I think that's something that we're all sort of like juggling and figuring out. But um, I know Andrea and I are also really intrigued by what role the Persian recipes played in this book. So when you were starting out, when you were writing your proposal with your agent, what was the original idea behind this book? And were Persian recipes always going to be part of the story? Well, I mean, the first flavors that I was introduced to 
were the flavors of, of the food of Iran. I mean, that is the first thing that I tasted that my, my family talks about how I loved kufte, which is, you know, and there's many different variations around the Middle East. But I wanted to make sure that Iranian recipes were in the book, but that this book wasn't an Iranian cookbook. Not to say that I, you know, will not write an Iranian cookbook. I actually, I, I hope to do that one day, but I didn't want that to be my first book. And I think this book, I, I felt like it should be about the lessons that I've learned thus far as a first-generation Iranian-American, as someone who's worked in restaurant kitchens, who's traveled a lot on their own, and my time in, in test kitchens and food media. These are the kind of four food spaces that have really shaped my food identity. And so I want to I kind of refer to them throughout the book in little ways. And so... It was very, it's funny, I feel like I'm having talks about, I guess I can say it, like an, an X book. And, and, it's like, and, and it's like, all right, we're going to, what's the focus? What's it? I'm like, I know right. what you're saying, because I think with your first book, you want to do it all. Yeah. I wanted to do it all. I didn't want it to be just a vegetable book, or just a Persian cookbook, just a techniques cookbook. So, but the Iranian recipes... There are Iranian recipes that are very much recipes that I grew up with, dishes that I grew up with, but there are also flavors and certain techniques that are in the recipes that aren't necessarily Iranian dishes, but I use those techniques and I refer to them. Uh, sizzling dried mint in hot oil is like a, something that you do uh, in a lot of Iranian dishes. The kind of using uh, linguine noodles instead of reshta noodles, which are very hard to find for the asharesta soup. And then also, obviously, like when it came to the rice, I knew I was going to do Persian rice and I wanted to do variations. And it ended up being the longest recipe in the book. It also is, has the shortest amount of ingredients. And I think that is also an important lesson I've learned. Before writing this book, it was developing recipes where you can really t tell people to try a new ingredient, but it's really hard to tell people to try a new ingredient and then give them a really technical recipe. And then on the flip side, you can teach people new techniques, but it's really hard to tell people to try a new technique with like a long list of ingredients. You kind of have to do one or the other in some ways. I was very conscious of that when writing this book. So that knowledge about how people receive instruction, culinary instruction, did that come from your work at BA? Yes. I think even though I had experience developing recipes prior to BA, I think I was still holding on to a little bit of my restaurant DNA, my restaurant cook, which to me it meant uh, maybe slightly like too many ingredients, overly complicated, too many uh, vessels and cookware. And I was 25 when I got the job at Bon Appetit. I was very young and I was the youngest senior person on staff that first year. And I've written about this was deeply uncomfortable, not because of any specific person. It was more just, I was suffering from a level of imposter syndrome. And I think I was developing these recipes that were overly fussy, had too long of ingredients, took too long and, and people weren't making it. And I remember, it was after my first year, and I, and I really was thinking about quitting, to be honest. I was not thinking to stay. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to make a rule. If I can't make these recipes in my tiny studio kitchen in New York City, then I'm not going to develop them. 
And for the most part, I really kind of ended up going and making this transition where uh, a colleague of mine, my former boss, Carla Lolly Music, would recognize this change and she would call me Andy 2.0 because I really <laughs> to a whole different direction. But it was it was really important for me to kind of go through that because um, it ended up making my my recipes just stronger and better. And obviously, once that happened, I think people actually started to, to make my recipes. Yeah, yeah, because there are certain recipes of yours that seem chefy, but then like they come together very naturally and organically and very easily. Yes. And one of the things that that I feel that you put into the book throughout are herbs. Yes. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I connected with your book because I, I thought, I have a lot of herbs too, yeah. my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and, and herbs are part of your culinary DNA. And how do they speak for you throughout the book? It's so funny because so many people, it, it has become a thing and maybe a little bit of a joke that I, that herbs are such a big part of my cooking. And it's true. And it, it really always has been. But that is very much directly tied to the food that I grew up with. And not just the use of uh, cooking with herbs, uh, whether they're dried or fresh, added to a stew or folded into uh, basmati rice for, for Persian rice. But also, we I grew up in a household where no matter what we were eating, there was always a platter of raw herbs called sabzi khordan. And this mix of herbs would be anything from, it would have like anywhere from like five to 10 mix of herbs. And I'm talking radish tops, mint, basil, uh, cilantro, tarragon, sometimes summer savory. And you would eat these kind of big clumps of herbs, kind of big herby, fresh palate cleanser of sorts between the kind of fatty braises and rich stews. It always brought me so much satisfaction. And so I very much add herbs to a lot of my food. Another, obviously, food that I loved and grew up with, and I don't think, Andrea, you know, that is actually Vietnamese food because my cousins have Vietnamese. So I think the reason why I also (laughs) love that is because it's food that I'm familiar with. I went to Vietnam maybe maybe seven or eight years ago and was there for about a month. So it, I see the kind of similarities and the delicateness and the big love for, for copious amounts of herbs. But you know, Andy, like no matter how big that <laughs> herb platter is that you set out for your for your friends, it's like a mountain. It's a hedgerow of herbs, yeah. right? Yes. And with your food. And you set it out for your guests. You're like so excited because you, you know, maybe you grew some of them. You washed them and they're perky. They're just like glowing with life. They don't really eat them the way you do. I mean, I'm like a rabbit. How how can we get folks who aren't familiar with this like love of fresh herbs to like eat them the way we do because it make it is part of the flavor the experience. I mean, the only way is that if you make people say hide the spice cabinet and only use herbs and just force them to use the herbs, they'll realize how much herbs can deliver for your food. I mean, that's the thing, right? Where sort of in Iranian culture, you're using so much herbs pretty much like every dish, right? Yes, so- yeah, many many dishes. And, you know, actually, it's such a smart way. The thing about it is like to people to be forced to use a lot of herbs in their cooking, because I think in a lot of cuisines around the world, herbs are maybe just used as kind of a finishing towards the end, maybe a few tablespoons, a cup's worth, but never, never too much. And it is so true. I will put a platter of herbs and I will go at it. I mean, I can't have 
herbs around me without starting to just pick at them and eat them. I don't even, it's, a, it's, it's, it's very much my, my mother and father's son in that sense. <laughs> but my partner, who is not Iranian, he's uh, from good old Jersey. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't So at my parents' home, I like, well, and I don't say anything, obviously, but I just look and my dad will like take a big handful of herbs and put it in front of his plate. It's like, eat herbs, like eat the herbs between the, he'll, he'll say them. My dad is so sweet and almost boyish. My, and my, my partner will like nod as a guest and he'll take like, a little thing of mint. I said, like, a mint leaf. Like, and I one time told him, like, that has to be finished by the time the meal is over. <laughs> yeah, it's not a garnish. No. It's a vegetable. Yes. And the cuckoo sabzi is so beautiful. I had no problem getting the herbs for that and getting down with chopping finely every single bit. <laughs> and it was so delicious and so green and life-giving. We want to talk about recipe titles and how you come up with those recipe titles. Because Kate and I were so interested. I mean, there's like this new way of doing recipe titles these days. They're like a lot of hyphens. (laughs) I agree. And yet once that we get into the Iranian recipes, I feel like you're like, oh, I can just call them by the classic Iranian names. It's true. There there is something happening with recipe names. You're very right. Because I think Looking at cookbooks maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was very kind of, there wasn't a lot of life to those recipe names in some ways, I want to say. I would argue that there was more life to the recipe names 30 or 40 years ago or 50 years ago. But there was like a definitely an odd period um, with naming recipes. I'd say in the last five years, especially, people have become very experimental with, with their names. And in a way... You know, personally, sometimes I see it where I'm like, there's too much going on here. Or I find contradictions where I'm like, that can't be sticky. Or like, that's can't, like, there's things that were, it, it actually doesn't make sense, but it just sounds right. So I wanted my names, the, my recipe names to one, obviously sound delicious, but also make sure it's very clear highlighting the, the actual main ingredients of the dish. <laughs> or naming the dish after like with a lot of the Iranian recipes the dish itself like what it's called and then doing a parenthetical of like how to kind of roughly translate it I always like to have as much kind of action so rather than having for example just because it's we're on the page persimmons with torn burrata and fresh lemon I probably write anywhere from three to five names for each recipe I really Lorena would see that and she was like I mean, you know, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can tell you right now, it was some options before. It was persimmons uh, with torn burrata and chopped lemon, sliced persimmons uh, with the milky burrata and lemon relish. It was uh, persimmons with um, torn burrata and crushed pistachios and fresh lemon, which felt like too long. But then I kind of landed where it's like really where it feels just enough. Persimmons doesn't really matter exactly how they're sliced because you're going to see it with the photo. And that's another thing. Because there's really a photo for each recipe, you kind of want to know what to describe and what actually doesn't need to be described because there's a big photo right next to it. So I landed with persimmons with torn burrata and fresh lemon. 
the fresh lemon was something I went back and forth because I because there was a moment I really wanted chopped lemon just so people sense what um, what you're doing with the lemon. But I landed with fresh lemon because it sounded like fresh is always something I seem to be using as a descriptor. Uh, not to say that everything that I don't describe as fresh is not fresh, but there's something <laughs> that it works really well with citrus and there's an aliveness to that citrus. And the fact that you're using the whole entire lemon, I thought it made sense. Yeah, no, that that does make sense. And also, like, I'm highly intrigued by that tiny little, those five lines about the grilled corn Persian style that you tuck mm, into yeah. the coconut cream corn recipe. That really sounds phenomenal. Just describe how you make that, because your description was just, I wanted to try it. And I think corn season right now is over. And I'm like, darn, I have to wait till uh, next year. <laughs> I'm so happy that, you know, I, I, that you guys uh, noticed that because... There's a lot of sidebars in the recipes, and some of them I wanted to give information about how to choose ingredients, but have it be kind of fun and not feel so kind of too academic about it, but just enough informative of having an understanding. And then also like some of the sidebars are just about techniques or like this kind of these small paragraph style recipes. And Persian corn was something I knew it didn't need to kind of full page recipe, but it was it's so delicious and so simple. And it's only three ingredients. And it's such a big part of my childhood. It is basically taking the corn and getting it almost entirely burnt. You want and I like doing it. uh, You can do it with the husks on and then so that it seems and then going over back so that the kernels are are nice and charred, or you can just kind of remove the husks and then just directly put it on the the grates. I like making sure that you're using charcoal, good coal for this. So you want that kind of smoky flavor and you want the kind of a deeply, deeply charred kernels. And then once you remove it off the grill, you dip it in this hot, extremely salty. And I mean this, I'm not, not for your pasta. I don't think your pasta water needs to be as salty as your ocean. But this water should be as salty as the ocean. And it's a quick little dip in this really salty water. And what you're doing is, one, you're, you're deeply seasoning that corn with the salty water. And you're also kind of removing some of the kind of um, little bit of charred, excess charred bits also from the corn. So you kind of get this nice balance. And you end up getting this salty, smoky, sweet corn that is very delicious on its own if you want which you don't necessarily we didn't necessarily do but it is delicious you could swipe some butter on that um you can slice it up and add it to a salad but i just eat it on its own i don't know i think that has to go full you want a full photo of that in your next book that has to be you know (laughs) definitely one of the core recipes i have two ears of corn in my crisper right now So the recipe for falude, um, mm. the head note starts as falude is one of the most famous Persian desserts. Mm. So if you were writing a Persian cookbook, would you still lead with that head note in the same way or how would it be different? Oh, that's such a, that's such a great question. I wouldn't lead with that head note if it was a Persian cookbook because I imagine, and this is really thinking years, you know, potentially a decade or more ahead of time. But I imagine that I would have a sweets or dessert section for for the cookbook. And I would 
have kind of give the reader an understanding of the flavors and ingredients used within Persian desserts and sweets. So it, it, I wouldn't feel like it's necessary to, to highlight that, uh, especially because I'm thinking of so many other Persian desserts that would end up going in. But followed over here because it is very different than I th- it's the only cold dessert in, in the very tiny dessert chapter. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of make sure that people know that it, this is a Persian uh, recipe. So what do you think Adishne would think about Andy's work? And I don't know if I pronounced your name correctly. Oh, so uh, I, I've never had anybody try to pronounce my name, I think, on a podcast. So tell me, so so tell me what is the correct pronunciation, because I totally guessed it. The correct pronunciation is Andisha. Andishne. Andisha is... Um, and I've been going by Andy pretty much since I was, I guess, 13. But Andy She is not actually a common name. It's it's not a religious name. It's not a name that you, you hear a lot in, in Persian culture. And neither is my sister's name, for that matter. It's not to say that no one else has named that, but it's very uncommon. But my parents named us both after kind of... Um, my sister's name is Ghazal, and Ghazal translates as couplets, which is... Um, the kind of poetry style that became famous from Rumi and Hafez, uh, the famous Iranian poets. And Andisha is a term uh, that means the state of being in deep thought. Wow. <laughs> what a great name. Yeah. <laughs> Which is maybe adds to the reason why I'm so neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, but I feel like they gifted you with that from the moment you popped out. <laughs> <laughs> what would Andy Shea feel about Andy's book? I think that he would be very proud. I think I feel like, you know, as someone who's first generation, there is this kind of in-between that I think a lot of I've, I've heard and I've spoken with other first generation of, of many different descents. And I think for me, when I write about and develop a Persian recipe, the way I approach it is that I want to provide context to the dish and how it's often made and maybe certain variations, even if my version is it doesn't necessarily fully fall under that. So, for example, like because we were just speaking about it, the falude. Falude is something that is almost has like the kind of slushiness of a granita and has these crunchy rice noodles, which are both in the recipe. And it's topped with a sour cherry syrup, which is now instead of uh, a homemade one, I did a sour cherry jam that's thinned out. The thing that I did that is different is that the falude that I grew up with is very, very sweet and has too much rose water for me personally. And I wanted something that almost resembled a sour, slightly, slightly fragrant granita, but it really makes your mouth pucker now. And rather than the over, that, rather than the kind of overly sweet one that I grew up with, and it still has that wonderful crunch from the rice noodles, uh, and the sour cherry syrup still stains the whole entire thing. <laughs> but the flavor I tweaked to my preference. I see. And now my mouth is salivating. I'm yeah. just like, I want that right in front of me right now. Yeah. I'm bitter and sour, sweet, bitter, <laughs> bitter, sweet and sour myself. Yeah. So- <laughs> <laughs> Andy, 
thank you so much for coming on our show, being candid and sharing so generously all of the wealth and knowledge that you have. And we are so excited about your book. And gosh darn it, we hope to hear more and see more of you on Everything Cookbooks and elsewhere. Oh, it was just so great too for anyone who is writing the recipe, like thinking about if you have a long ingredient list, make the method easy. If you have a long method, make the ingredient list short and you can get more buy-in. I think that just speaks so much of like how smart you've been with putting together this book, putting those beautiful stories in there, but also thinking about the end user. So it's been a pleasure to work from this book. Thank you both so much, truly. And I'm so happy to be on the podcast. This has been so much fun to listen to and I feel very lucky to be part of it now. Thank you for listening to Everything Cookbooks. If you've got a question, comment, or idea, send us a note through our website, everythingcookbooks.com. All of the books mentioned on the show today can be found on our affiliate page at bookshop.org. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks so much to our editor, Abby Circatella. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep on writing, reading, and cooking.